Well, this is The New Activist. My name is Eddie, and I am so excited for you to hear this episode. I know I probably say that about every episode, but it's like picking your favorite kid. Every single one's your favorite. This one, though, really may be one of my favorites because Liz Bohannon is a just a remarkable person. She is the founder of Seiko Design. Seiko, by the way, is an ethical fashion brand that works to educate and empower women. And if you've heard of Seiko before, something's ringing a bell, it may be because you watch Shark Tank. They were, in fact, in the Shark Tank a few seasons ago, and it was amazing to watch them pitch this idea that is pretty revolutionary. That is the idea of a company that is win-win for everyone. Right? There are people in Uganda who are going to school because of this company. There are people in the United States who are getting to buy these wonderful, fashionable, amazing goods. There are people in the U.S. that get to sell this and, and have their own business. So it's pretty awesome. But also, I really have appreciated this conversation mainly because of Liz's story, how she got to being the founder and CEO of this incredibly popular wonderful brand. She has a story that will certainly inspire you to take big, bold steps. I'm excited for you to hear this. Here is my conversation with Liz Bohannon. So Liz, I have a question. First one, where did you grow up? And when you were growing up, what did you think you were going to do with your life? That was such a like Terry Gross opener question, wasn't it? I love, I love Terry <laughs> that Gross. Was, so that was a very that professional. Um, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was a little tight, man. I am your classic at any given time. I could tell you 15 different things. I actually kind of just went through the process of going through my emails from my senior year of college, um, looking at the sheer variety of things that I thought I could see doing with my life. But (laughs) I would say the most consistent one sat in the realm of communications and more specifically journalism. So when I was like in high school, I practiced my war correspondent introduction, saw myself as like in the Middle East reporting from the front line journalist. And that was kind of probably the most crystal clear vision that I had for my dream job. I'm thinking about myself in high school and I was thinking of nothing other than me. And I'm not sure, I don't think I'd ever been to any other country and I didn't have any sense of ever going to another country. Like, I'm just curious how this, maybe I'm asking as a parent, but like, how was this interest cultivated in you or was it? I mean, did you travel a lot as a kid or was it just, this was just in your DNA? So we didn't travel a lot, which I think is really important because I think it's probably easy now, even that I'm a parent, we look for things, um, that allow us to opt out of, <laughs> you know, like, well, we don't travel a lot. So I couldn't create that for my child. Um, so never left the United States of America until I was in, um, at, until I graduated from college. So, huh. however, incredibly blessed with, I really attribute a lot of it to my mother, who was a pediatric um, transplant and dialysis nurse hmm. and worked in a hospital in um, downtown St. Louis saw kids from all over the state, really high percentage of kids that came from inner city St. Louis that became a part of our family. Um, No questions asked. And my mom is just, she is literally the closest human being to, I mean, she's a, she's a saint. And so Hmm. she would bring these kids home from the hospital that, you know, if you know anything about St. Louis, what you know is like, you don't have to go to another country to experience 
social injustice in our city is a walking testament to that racially, socially, economically. I mean, the kids that grew up 40 miles away from me in a lot of ways may have grown up, you know, 4 million miles away from me. And those kids just became a part of our family. And my mom was just pretty, she's like the sweetest human, but when it came to those kids and when it came to us and our like grew up in the West County suburbs entitlement, it was just like no mercy. You know, I remember waking up, Maria was a little girl who would come to our house. She had kidney failure and she would stay at our house on the weekends. And Eddie, this little girl snored like a freight train. (laughs) You wouldn't believe it. And she, Maria and I always shared a bed, you know, when, when she came to stay with us on the weekends. And I just had it one night and I couldn't sleep. And I remember walking into my mom's bedroom and waking her up and told her, you know, having a whole spiel about like, I've had it, I've had enough. And this is impeding on my life and my right, you know? And I remember my mom so calmly looking at me, hearing me out, getting up out of bed, so calmly and tenderly going down the hallway, opening up the linen closet. And I'm thinking, Thank God she's finally going to, you know, move Maria to where she belongs, which is in the living room and handing me the pile of linens and just saying, like, I hope you I hope you can sleep well on the couch. Precious, precious. Yeah. <laughs> down the hallway. And it was just like and I remember that moment of like, oh, this is my place in the home. My place in the home is I'm the kid that gets kicked out of my bedroom and belongs on the couch. And I think you deal with enough of those like moments as a kid where you start to realize like, Ooh, what I think is the biggest problem in the world. And what I think that I'm owed in this situation isn't maybe the whole picture. And I really, really truly attribute a lot of just kind of my awareness to, to my privilege um, to my mom. And I think what I really credit her towards is that we never had to leave the country. We never had to leave the, the state to um to for that environment to be the home that I grew up in. I, I don't want to move too quickly through your whole early life, but you're in at this point you're like in high school going to college, you study journalism, correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. So you study journalism and you still think you're going to be like you're still moving towards the war correspondent kind of out there in the field. I mean, is that still kind of the dream through college? Yeah, I would say through college, it became more of, I want to be the next Nick Kristoff. So maybe not quite on quite, you know, like reporting live from the trenches, but yeah, going to the most that, you know, the places in the world um, and where specifically the situation for women and girls is the worst. So that was kind of end of high school through college, really kind of um, combining this lens of social justice. Uh, with a gender justice kind of worldview, where are the places in the world where those two things intersect became more interesting to me. So if you would have asked me what my dream job was, I would have said, Nick Kristoff, when he retires, I'm going to move in that place. Where did the, where did the sense of, I'm asking the same basically question again, but where did the sense of gender justice come from? Had you seen Uh, injustice in that area in some way, or was it You know, I think I would actually say it was more from a personal lens. And I, you know, praise God, don't come from a background where I have, you know, a story of of trauma or of extreme gender justice. But I think being a female who happens to, we touched on this a little bit before we went live, have a pretty big presence and personality, um, Mm -hmm. have some like pretty early memories of 
experiencing a lot of shame around that. Um, and, and pretty early memories of going, huh, this is interesting. I don't feel like I'm doing anything different than Tucker, the boy sitting next to me, who's the captain of the soccer team. Why am I getting so much flack for, you know, having a loud mouth or for being bossy? And, and Tucker over here, you know, the 12 year old boy is being heralded as like an aspiring young leader. Um, <laughs> and that started that like kind of sense of awareness of like something about this is different. And I, it's coming down to the fact that I think it's because I'm a girl um, from a pretty early age kind of started influencing, I think, just my lens of which I evaluated the world. Okay, well, let's talk about you going to that area. And by the way, that is a, I'm interrupting myself, a fascinating point because no one, like it would not be unprecedented for someone to ask you the question, how do you balance motherhood and running right? this business? And <laughs> no one's asking me, hey, how do you right. like do, nobody cares. Absolutely. Yeah. Really something. At some point you are done with college and I know that you you head to Uganda. Can you tell me mm -hmm. like why you went to Uganda because there's that's a sort of a quick moment in your bio. But I also think about for someone that had not left the country to yeah. actually go to Uganda and be like, oh, I have to go get like all these shots. It's like a thing. And I, I hate to harp on the really minutia of points. But yeah. what? why did you go to Uganda? What was that like? So Uganda was really because I had I had been looking for jobs that would take me to somewhere else in the world. You know, I was a classic millennial idealistic. I'm going to get to pursue all my passions and get paid for it and get health insurance at the same time. Well, turns out that unicorn didn't exist for me. <laughs> like, so I gave up, kind of took a traditional job, I had bills to pay and, you know, whatnot. And for me, it really became, I was, I had a, there is a moment in time where I remember having, uh, having this realization. And it's one of those things that once you think it, you can't go to unthinking it that I was like, you know, for someone who says they're really passionate about this issue, women and girls living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones, pretty interesting. You don't have a single friend who's a woman that grew up in a conflict zone or living in extreme poverty. Hmm. Hmm. And it's just like, I knew <laughs> I had that thought, it was just, as it was coming, you know, do you ever have those thoughts where you're like, stop thinking it, stop thinking it so that you don't have to deal with the, think that, with the fact that you thought it. Right, right, because you have now rung the bell. And you, you can't. have now rung the bell, the envelope <laughs> is open, and you're going to have to sit in that, and you're going to have to go, okay, you either kind of have to give up this gig of saying this is something you care so deeply about, and that just breaks your heart so much, or you need to close this Delta. You need to like go actually make friends and live in a community that's affected by these issues. Um, and I chose the latter and I didn't know how to do that. Literally Eddie, it was just the only, I had, I felt like I had tried so hard in the vocation area and the job area of, of looking for opportunities that would do that for me that when I, ran through the list and none of them worked out. I kind of threw my hands up. And the only other thing I could think of to do was to quit my job, to buy a one-way plane ticket, to go live in a place where I felt like my likelihood and the opportunity to create a community that was actually affected by these issues was greater than where it was in St. Louis, Missouri. And so that's what I did. Wait, so you did like the Mary Tyler Moore moment where you just went and you're like, just figuring it's all going to work out? Looking back on it, I think I bought my ticket on kayak.com. I'm pretty sure it was that day at the office. Printed wow. it out. 
computer, which probably is illegal. Wow. That is, <laughs> that is extreme. It's really unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's very brave, uh, right? So uh, like, you get off a plane. Where do get you where plane. do you go? Do you have like a friend there or a church or something? I have one phone number. Yep, I have one phone number of a girl that went to my college. That we were like kind of loose friends. Ran in the same broad friend group. She was a year older than me. That I knew had moved to Uganda to work. She had like a two year commitment working for essentially a street youth home in Uganda. And I sent her the email, I forwarded my flight itinerary and I was like, Hey, I'm moving to Uganda. Like want to hang out and get coffee. (laughs) And she was so gracious and luckily emailed me back and was like, wait, what, why, what are you doing? What's the deal? You know, fill me in. And of course I had to email her back and go, nothing to fill you in on. This is all I've got so far. And so she very graciously said, well, you can stay with me at my apartment until you get your feet on the ground. I'll see you in a, you know, see you in a month. And so showed up at the airport, had her phone number. Um, and I, I'm a very big, I'm a very big believer that that's, you only need one phone number. You only need one person and they don't have to be your best friend and they don't have to be, you know, the, the connector that you can see getting you to step, you know, 10 or 15. It's just like you have one Maybe my life is, maybe my memoir would be titled, actually, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. (laughs) Um, Because I I truly believe that's all you need. And that's all I had. And it was like from that one phone number and a place to stay on night one. And that was enough. Well, this seems like a good time to pause the conversation because Liz is actually, spoiler alert, about to say some really kind things about IJM, International Justice Mission. I didn't ask her to say this, but she just had a great interaction with IJM, and so it was cool. But I did want to remind you that this show is brought to you by IJM. IJM is working to end slavery in our lifetime and won't stop until all are free. It is just an honor to be a part of this organization, and it is an honor for them to bring you this show. You know, we don't do a lot of like sponsors and ask and things like that, but we do ask that you do something really important, and that is go to newactivist.is, newactivist.is forward slash IJM, and fill out the form that you see there. That form will generate a letter. That letter will go to your elected officials, and the letter is really simply asking them to support the end of modern-day slavery. So to support the new activist, please go to newactivist.is forward slash IJM. Back to my conversation with Liz and sort of the conversation begins again with me asking her what she, what did she uncover when she was in Uganda? I uncovered that there are, wasn't shocked by the level of darkness and brokenness and injustice that I saw in Uganda. I, you know, I studied and read enough and written enough papers um, that kind of the statistical level, uh, you know, of, of that, of poverty and of gender discrimination wasn't necessarily surprising. But of course, when you experience it in the context of community, um, it means a whole lot more when these are issues that are um, directly facing people that you've come to love and respect. Um, but I, on the solution side of things, went through a very classic, um, pretty cynical, critical 
disillusionment of how we specifically as Americans were going about trying to solve problems in Uganda. Hmm. So a lot of work specifically in the nonprofit kind of charity humanitarian aid space that I looked at and went, Oh no, Hmm. I I don't think that this is doing what people think it's doing. And if it even looks today, like it's doing what people think it's doing, like when you fast forward 20 years from now, and I you feel really bad about the direction that this is going in. Just level, you know, sustainability. A huge thing for me was it became very clear when I showed up in Uganda, the relational dynamic that has been created over the past couple of decades, specifically with kind of the white Western aid mentality. There's a really strong dynamic of giver and receiver between Americans and Ugandans. Mm. And I remember showing up and being really devastated by that because it felt like, man, this is this is the most beautiful part of God's kingdom is that we're all givers and we're all receivers. That true friendship and relationship and community means that there it ebbs and it flows. And at times I'm receiving and you're giving and in other areas and in other seasons, those roles flip. And that's how we build community. And that's how we build the kingdom. And yet I showed up in into this dynamic where it felt like, oh no, you know who the giver is and you know who the receiver is. And those roles have been set forever and ever. Amen. And mm. the level of just the loss of complexity and dignity and depth that that stripped from both sides was really heartbreaking to me. And I, from that moment on kind of thought, if I'm ever going to be a part of anything here, it can't, we're not doing that. And there's not going to be givers and there's not going to be receivers and there's not going to be donors and, and beneficiaries. Like, and at the time I didn't have language or a vision for it, but that has been something that has deeply influenced our work, everything from our legal structure to how we talk about our team and our colleagues in Uganda. And I will say IJM was the organization in Uganda that kept me from going all nonprofits are a load of crap. No way. (laughs) And it's just hurting people more than it's helping. Yes. The level of excellency and I mean the caliber of people that I met, my kind of actual peer group had a handful of IJM interns um, in it. And they were kind of my buddies. And they were the only people that kind of came from the nonprofit space that I remember thinking like they're thinking like smart, Hmm. savvy, sustainable oriented, excellent private marketplace folks. That's unbelievable to hear that just makes me so happy. Um, and thanks for the kind compliment. That's amazing. Um, so you start Seiko. Hey, also, can we just acknowledge how awkwardly I just responded to that? (laughs) that was that was like the worst transition i've ever done in my entire podcasting life because i was deeply thinking about what you were saying and trying to carry the conversation i love awkward responses it's kind of like when my husband told me he loved me for the first time and i said i'm okay with that yes thank you for saying that to me (laughs) the truth is it was a very nice thing you said about ijm and i was just thinking about it and i didn't want to talk for a second so we're back uh seiko First of all, I said it correctly, correct? You did. Way to go. Oh, thanks. Can you give me the pitch? Can you tell me what Seiko is? So we are an ethical fashion brand. We produce beautiful, high-end, on-trend, well-made footwear, handbags, accessories. And we work with incredible 
high potential academically gifted young women in Uganda that test into college but can't afford to go. So our entire business model kind of helps facilitate employing women during their nine-month gap in between high school and university, which is when a lot of women kind of struggle really deeply, um, both to find a job so that they can pay for university and also to have a social support network that kind of um, supports them in the in the road that they're walking, which can be really lonely for a you know 21 year old Ugandan woman to say, I want to go on and study law and become a lawyer or a doctor or an entrepreneur. And so we've created a business model that essentially kind of answers those two primary issues, which is one, the financial component and two, the community component. So she works for Seiko, uh, basically starts working for us the day she graduates from high school Mm. and 50% of her salary that she earns every month. And I put the emphasis on salary because it's not a donation. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, she's not being gifted anything. She's working her butt off and working super hard day in and day out. And for that, she gets paid fairly. And 50% of her salary goes into a savings account that she's actually not allowed to access until she goes to university. And then um, at the end of her nine months, kind of in this work study program with Seiko, we will match um, bare minimum of 100% up to 400% of her savings with a university scholarship so that she can continue on to college and become a leader and change maker in Uganda and our world. Okay. I feel like my next question is supposed to be like, walk me through the numbers. What's the evaluation? But that's because I saw you on Shark Tank. So you, (laughs) yes, you did. And I don't even want to talk about Shark Tank because I know you've talked about it a bunch and other interviews, but this is where probably a lot of people have kind of first experienced the company, but the company is, how how long have you all been around? About eight years. Holy smokes. How many people have uh, gone to college? Because, we uh, this next year, so our our 2018 class, we will graduate our 100th woman from our program who will finish with Seiko and go on to university. There are a lot of what would appear from an outsider without really digging into business models, a lot of these types of companies. We are creating something in Africa. It is providing some sort of benefit to the people that is create that are creating it, and then we we sell it here. In, in, in the U.S. and so we feel yeah. good about it. Why didn't I just go? Yeah. Why didn't you work t- for one of them? Well, like, well, yeah. Um. So one great question. The eight years ago, it was actually a lot more rare as part of it. Um, mm-hmm. So the the marketplace has changed dramatically in the last decade. When I started Seiko about eight years ago, there were some fringe people like us that were kind of navigating this water. And there was Tom's essentially, um, which is a completely different model. Tom's is really run a normal company, then donate on the back end out of your profits. Um, not really thinking about, you know, creating jobs and, and things being based in the, in the country where the social impact is happening. So one, it was actually a little bit more rare, which is hard to imagine because it's so ubiquitous today. Two, the people that did exist, and I actually um, can tell you this because it was a real life experience. The the guy that ran the nonprofit that we still to this day partner with and have a very dear and beloved relationship with, he kind of suggested, he was like, hey, you know, there's all these people that are, you should make paper beads. And paper beads, if you're not familiar, in Uganda is kind of like the craft. It's the thing that like, Every nonprofit that's working with women and girls in Uganda that needs a product that they can sell to raise money makes these 
paper beads. They're cool. Like it's a neat thing. It's funny but that it- you mentioned that. We had a we we talked to Parker Clay last season, and they said the exact same product. Like it must really be a thing. It is so ubiquitous. That's yes. really and, funny. Yes. And so the the kind of people that, you know, to, in their defense, their job is running an incredible nonprofit that we're very happy to support. They're not uh, business people. Right. So when they're going, oh, just make paper beads and sell those back home, that's what everybody else is doing. I remember thinking, one, on a personal level, I can't get behind that because, oh, my gosh, I'm just kind of over the paper beads. And there's only so many paper beads a human needs. And two, from a business standpoint, thinking like what I want to do with Seiko is so much bigger than even sending these women to university. Like if I'm going to do this and I'm going to say we're going to solve a nonprofit problem with a for profit solution, I want to do that in a way that freaking Nike looks at and goes, Mm. huh, interesting. What if we took one or two percent of our production out of Asia and invested in East Africa? Like the impact that I have as a leader when I start to think bigger beyond my own business and my product line and the people that I'm working with and really saying like, I want East Africa to be a place that people are thinking really seriously about investing dollars, not humanitarian aid dollars, but just business dollars and Hmm. building infrastructure and creating jobs, um, recognizing that 90% of the problems that the nonprofits are trying to solve would be solved if people had jobs with benefits they could send their kids to school. They could afford to go to the hospital when they were sick. Um, and so for me, it was really going like, we're not going to get there if we keep making kind of like subpar, kitschy, ethnic products that let's be just really honest. People are buying out of a charitable mindset, which is fine. That's very different than buying a product and allocating dollars that you would have spent at Target or Nordstrom hmm. on a product that's beautifully made that's handcrafted yes it has a great story but it's also made out of an awesome uh you know piece of leather in a super trendy color and it you know and it fits in the right demographic at the right price point so i would so much rather buy that from seiko than buy that from nordstrom Um, and i didn't see that happening around me it really felt like even the product producers were really still at the core of who they are charities that happen to sell product to raise money. Um, and I've always been much, you know, actually not to, I'm totally fangirling out on IJM right now. I promise it's not just because you work for them. No, I um, love it. And you do it. Like, no, keep your charity dollars going to the best charities out there, which I consistently point to IJM as one of them. Like, don't you dare take your $35 a month that you're putting towards being a freedom partner at IJM and instead buy a little leather coin purse. What I want you to do is stop buying that crap from, you know, Target or Nordstrom that's being made by a slave somewhere in China and spend that money over here where you're going to get a product that's equally as beautiful, that's equally as on trend and probably better made with better materials that's going to help a girl in Uganda go to college and maybe become the next president of Uganda. Um, Hmm. And so really kind of saying, I want to take dollars from the marketplace, not take dollars from nonprofits. And in order to do that, like, we can't, we can't be a charity. We need to be a best in class, well-run. Like I want Uganda to be a best in class manufacturing and production and design house in East Africa. Um, and, and I didn't see that happening. Uh, a lot of people that listen to this show are, you know, the, the high school college version of you that have these things that are percolating inside of them that 
that that are waiting to come out. They're waiting to express themselves. They're not quite sure what it's going to be, but they're probably just a few clicks away from you know buying the buying the ticket from to, to Uganda. I'm curious what you would say to someone just as, and I realize this is general advice, but just what you would say to someone or even say to yourself who is who is percolating, who is thinking about how they're going to take a next step to change the world. I would tell them that your the percolating timer is up. Ding! That was it. <laughs> and that you just got to do it. Buy the ticket, make the phone call. Does it have to be, you know, quit your job and move across the world? No, but you know deep in your heart what leveling up means and what it means to get to a place where you're actually doing something and you're not just thinking about it anymore. You're not just researching. You're not just preparing. I I believe that we stay in that place for far too long because it's it's a really um, it's a really safe place for our egos. Yeah. Very cushiony, safe land because you can't bomb, you can't fail, you can't you know and just. I won't get too far into this, but I started a couple things before Seiko that I had a chicken farm. Seiko, you know, my really cool, trendy, ethical fashion brand actually started as a chicken farm. And the reason that that's important is because Seiko doesn't exist unless the chicken farm starts first. Right. Because it was at the chicken farm where I learned why it was a terrible idea and why the numbers didn't add up and why I, particularly as a human in the world, am not well suited to be in agriculture. <laughs> um, but you don't learn all of those things sitting behind your computer and, and Googling and, you know, taking people out for informational interviews and buying them a cup of coffee. You actually learn them when you show up and you do the work. And specifically for young people, man, there is just, there is no path that you're going to go down that if it doesn't work out, you can't just backtrack or say, whoop, need to go in, in a 45 degree, you know, angle in a different path. I think we just, we have this narrative that life is kind of this fatalistic set of doors. And it's like, once you open this door or once you close that door, it's just like, no, there are very few things that we can do in life that are those doors. I would say like murdering someone is one of them, right? Like that is going to put you on a trajectory that is going to be very hard to undo. Like, Quitting your kind of low level entry job that doesn't align with what you believe about the world. Like, you know what? Worst case scenario, you go out, you do the thing, it fails, or you realize that, you know, your calling in the world actually was back there. Like, guess what? You're going to be able to find another one. Hmm. Um, and, and just recognizing that, uh, that the stakes, I think, are actually for us a lot lower than we think they are. The stakes for our brothers and sisters across the globe are infinitely higher than we can imagine. Um, and weighing those stakes in this moment right now um, is something that I think that each of us are called to do. One of the questions that we ask on the show a lot, and uh, you know, it's a pretty on the nose question, but I'm especially interested to hear what you think about this, but how would you define someone who's an activist? Oh, I would define someone, this is a great question. This is a phrase we use specifically with our fellows, our team of women here in the U.S. that sell the product. We say that a Seiko fellow sees the gap between the way the world is and the way it could be, and that she actively is making a choice in life to stand in that gap. And I think that that's how I would define an activist. They have the self-awareness and the courage to accurately and honestly take a look at the world and, and the state of the world 
and acknowledge where we are, they also have the remarkable courage to imagine what it could be like. And they're crazy enough to believe that even in a way that might seem so small, that they actually could be a co-creator of, of the world that they wish existed. Well, how about Liz Bohannon? I just, I just kept listening back to this interview and thinking somebody is going to hop on kayak today and buy a plane ticket. If that's your story, if you end up taking just a big step, and it doesn't have to be a plane ticket, but a big step for you, let us know. I love hearing about this, and I'm sure Liz would as well. You can find out more about Liz, her work, Seiko, how you can get involved, how you can sell it, how you can buy it, how you can connect with them on social media and all of that. Very simply, go to Seiko, S-S-E-K-O Designs, SeikoDesigns.com. And what is really fun, I was just emailing with Liz and she gave me two updates that I thought were really important to pass along to you. If you want to become a fellow, if you want to be an impact entrepreneur and represent Seiko and tell their story here in the US and be a part of, of selling their products and talking to people about all of the stuff that we just talked about in the episode, they have 70 more spots to bring on people in 2017. And if they fill those spots, they are going to double the savings match to every woman on the team in Uganda. So basically, more people here telling the story, more money to Uganda. And they said that every person who signs up to become a fellow and begins representing Seiko and tells them that they heard about it on The New Activist or because of IJM, they are going to make a donation to IJM. This isn't a paid sponsorship. They just said they're going to do it. And I think it is so very kind of them. So for that reason and many others, become a fellow. The links to all of this will be on our episode page. So I'm not even going to give them out now. They'll just look in the notes of wherever you're listening to this show. Throughout the week, one of the great parts of this show is the fact that conversations continue. So if you have quotes, thoughts, questions, anything, know that we are on Facebook and Twitter. Both of them have the same handle, New Activist Is. Also, if you are listening to this on iTunes, or even if you're not, if you could head over to the iTunes store and rate the show favorably and maybe leave us a comment, it is one of the most helpful ways to spread the word about the show. If you don't like the show, congratulations on making it all the way to the end of the show to hear me say that, but also, I guess, let us know why. A special thanks to the brilliance who scored today's episode. You can find out where they are touring, where you can buy their music, all of that good stuff. All of it can be found on thebrilliancemusic.com. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Liz Bohannon, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the Relevant Podcast Network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more relevant podcast network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. Hey guys, I'm Mike Foster from the Fun Therapy Podcast. My first questions for my guests on the Fun Therapy Podcast is always this, what don't you want me to know? And what don't you want to talk about? We dive into the horribly messy parts of life and we find hope and healing and answers and we do it all with a smile. I hope you'll join us for the Fun Therapy Podcast.